There's a way, a way, such a better way Today, today Raise your voice, tell the world There's a better way Today, there's a better way This is Rod Adams, and it's time for another Atomic Show. Uh, with me today, I have Alyssa Hayes, a nuclear advocate extraordinaire and currently a PhD candidate at the University of Tennessee. Welcome, Alyssa. Hi, Rod. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And uh, as we discussed a little bit before the show, I like to have the guests tell us all a little bit about yourself, You know, where you grew up, what you got you into nuclear, uh, what your, your educational background is, and What's your professional uh, interest in the topic? So I know that later in this interview, we're going to talk a lot about my interest in energy policy. And that actually um, came before my interest in nuclear. So when I was 14 and in high school, uh, I interned for my local state senator, Melinda Bush in Illinois. Um, and so at the time I thought I wanted to go into policy and political science. And it turned out that all of that was still true. Um, but as I, uh, progressed through high school, my parents and my teachers were like, that's doesn't seem like, uh, as, uh, easy of a career path, um, and, or as lucrative of a career path as engineering. And I was doing really well in my math and science classes. And my AP science teachers, specifically my AP physics teachers, uh, told me that it would be a waste of talent if I didn't pursue engineering of some kind and go to school for engineering. And so I'm really glad that I listened to them. Um, but when I, I remember sitting on my bed um, when I was like 17 or something in my dad's house trying to decide what do I want to do for the rest of my life pretty much. Uh, I don't really, I, I wasn't like comfortable. And I think a lot of people aren't comfortable making significant pivots once they've already started a bachelor's degree in college. And when I knew that I was going to go into engineering and I had to pick a kind of engineering, well, I figured, okay, there's two things that everybody in the world needs, which is healthcare and energy. And I was not a big fan of biology. Um, it just wasn't the type of work that I like to do. So I didn't want to go into healthcare. And I figured, I don't know how I knew this, but I already knew that nuclear was the um, primary supplier of baseload clean carbon-free energy. Um, and so to me, like nuclear energy was like the obvious choice. I have absolutely no idea what got that in my head at the high school level, um, but it was definitely cemented there um, throughout my undergraduate career at the University of Illinois. I'm from Illinois originally. Um, I'm a Warren Township High School alum. And uh, I did my bachelor's degree in nuclear plasma and radiological engineering at U of I, which is also where I got back into uh, advocacy. Um, and then when I finished my degree, um, I elected to go to grad school here at UT. And that's where I am now. Probably your uh, cementing in, in high school had something to do with living in Illinois, which receives about 50% of its electricity from nuclear. So sometime along the path, you wrote, you maybe read a newspaper article, you heard somebody talk. Uh, it's probably not hard to believe that an Illinois high school student would understand a little bit about the importance of nuclear energy. Now, you mentioned the township you grew up in, and I think I read somewhere in your biographical material when preparing for this, that it's, it's near what used to be 
the Zion nuclear power plant, Mm -hmm. which is now a waterfront piece of vacant land. Yeah. Yeah. Actually in, um, I think it was like September, October of last year. So it's 2023 that we're recording this. So in 2022 in the fall, um, I had the bright idea to invite, um, as many, uh, state house reps and state senators as I could, um, only one of them ended up actually coming, um, as well as a bunch of local, uh, elected politicians. So the mayor, the, uh, township supervisor, um, Mayor McKinney, Sherry Neal, um, as well as a lot of their staff um, and like just like the other local leadership. So like the superintendent, the chief of police, the fire chief, um, et cetera, the park district um, supervisors or directors. I think they're directors. And so I invited a bunch of these folks and I brought along a few other advocates as well. um, And we did a tour of that, that Zion site as it stands now. And up until I started studying nuclear engineering, like in my bachelor's degree, I didn't even know that there had been like a nuclear power plant there that was in the process of being decommissioned, but pretty much for my entire life. That Zion site is only 15 minutes away from where I grew up, like driving distance. And it was decommissioned, uh, stopped operating in 1998 when I was one year old. And I, for my entire life growing up, didn't even know that the plant was there, didn't know that the waste was there, didn't know it was in the process of being decommissioned. Um, and I was really saddened to find out when when it was finally grassland, just flat, vacant lot, because it felt like a missed opportunity um, for me as someone from that area to have seen it and learned from it. Um, you know, to maybe have done like a high school tour of it or something. Um, and it was also obviously just sad to see like this clean energy asset um, down to just a vacant lot for no reason. Um, and so the purpose of the tour was to kind of show my local elected officials like what was at the site and then ha- open up a conversation for them um, with Constellation about what potentially could be done with that land in the future. Um, so it was still like a super helpful tour. Um, but at the same time, it was also really sad to see um, what has replaced this asset. I guess the 13-year-old Alyssa was not uh, reading Atomic Insights blogs when I was writing about the Zion nuclear power station and the potential uh, effort uh, for restarting the plant. It was being led by a a local resident named Nancy Thorner. Hmm. Uh, Probably over the, I guess, started in about 2008 until finally sometime in late 2011, the decision was, was completely firmed up and cast in concrete that there was going to be no effort to restart the plant. Up until 2008, when the price of natural gas looked like it was going to be high for a long time, there was actually some uh, interest on the part of Exelon to investigate restarting the plant. That interest dissipated with the crash in natural gas prices and, of course, the, the reaction to the Fukushima a disaster in in uh, 2011. But anyway, the 13 year old Alyssa probably wasn't paying attention at that point. Yeah, um, at least not to nuclear, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> you, you were just about ready to start your internship, though. So 
yeah there's that <laughs> I, I can't I, I don't think that I, I was ever thinking about doing any kind of political internship when I was 14 I think I was <laughs> too busy doing other weird stuff but anyway um, so one of the reasons that I remembered that I wanted to invite you to this show I've, I've heard about you and interacted with you a little bit on on Twitter over the years but you were recently uh, selected as the Generation Atomic Volunteer of the Month. And uh, I saw a little interview about you and talked about some of your desires for the future. And what do you see as the future of nuclear and how is it going to make the world a better place? So not only do I want to see um, the, like the, sometimes forgotten pillar behind um like the purpose of um international nuclear law the iaea and even here in the united states the nrc um be supported with like a renewed vigor which is that we need to see um and encourage the expansion of nuclear energy for peaceful civilian purposes um a lot of the time internationally, there's like this hesitancy, or at least there has been historically a hesitancy um, to pursue civilian nuclear energy because of proliferation issues, because of, well, what if um, this ally country thinks that I'm going to try to pursue a clandestine nuclear weapons program, but I don't want to, right? Um, I think that there needs to be, we have the safeguards technology now, right? So I do think that there needs to be a renewed push for um, civilian nuclear energy in every country, not just in the United States and not just in first world countries. So um, and th we're seeing that push now. We're seeing um, a lot of bilateral partnerships between countries that have already developed um, their civilian nuclear arsenal significantly with newcomer countries. Um, and that inspires a lot of hope in me to want to continue to push this momentum forward and see that ball continue to roll. Um, and so that way, maybe we have another nuclear golden age um, like we did 40 years ago. So um, that's kind of number one is like the expansion of like this very obvious baseload technology for clean energy, especially as um, not only is the international population growing, but the standard of living per person um, out of all of the existing almost 8 billion people on this earth um, is improving as well. And with that standard of living uh, improvement, we also need uh, more energy to support that standard of living. I like to take hot, like boiling hot showers uh, every single day. And I don't see any reason why every other person shouldn't have the opportunity to take boiling hot showers every day if they want to, um, or for us to refrigerate our food, etc. And so um, we need to be producing so much more energy. And right now, the cheapest way to do that is with fossil fuels. And even though China showed, like, I think to me, China is like a great example of how they exploded their use of fossil fuels at the same time that the standard of living for their population was improving. And I think that was a good thing, um, even though obviously it contributes to carbon emissions. But now they're transitioning because they have like the technological capacity to. Um, and so I think nuclear kind of provides the opportunity to skip as much of that time spent 
um, mass consuming fossil fuels while simultaneously allowing people to have that standard of living. Um, so a lot of the time, I think when, when I hear other people answer this question, it's very like first world focused. Um, but to me, I, I want to see everybody have the same standard of living that I do. And I think nuclear is a pathway to do that. I agree with you. It appears that you're also pierced some of the rhetoric around non-proliferation and recognize that in some cases, not all, in some cases, people that, that yell about non-proliferation are really trying to make sure that it, it's an America first kind of argument. It's we don't want them to have it, but of course we have whatever mm -hmm. we want in terms of enrichment capabilities, use of plutonium, uh, certainly. In, and we do have a weapons program that's not safeguarded because we're one of the chosen five. Yeah, um, I agree. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the colleagues that I interact with um, have the same mindset of that, well, it shouldn't just be uh, America first, that there should be a more equitable approach to the balance between non-proliferation and the expansion of nuclear energy and therefore um, the demand for nuclear fuel and who gets to produce it. But um, organizationally, um, we're still at a place where it is difficult for um, societies that represent um, very large amounts of people um, not just like uh, private or nonprofit societies, but also for government organizations um, to say those kinds of things because they're speaking on behalf of a lot of people who may not necessarily agree, even if leadership do. Um, but they're also in some cases speaking on behalf of like parts of the American government, um, which uh, depending on which part of the American government you're talking about has to have like an America first mindset. Um, and so this is a, a hot topic right now that a lot of people are, are talking about. Um, I think I'm just going to come out and say it. My mindset is that I do want to see um, more like, fuel uh, enrichment and reprocessing capability um, by our allies, um, regardless of like their status as a third, second or first world country. Um, if they're allies of our country, I don't see any reason why we couldn't be buying our um, nuclear fuel from them. So I think that the safeguards technology is there. Um, I think that the organizational and management framework and the regulatory framework is on its way. Um, and I'm hoping to see more exceptions in one, two, three agreements between the United States and our allies um, to subsection 123A7 in order to promote uh, and expand that uh, nuclear fuel market, um, especially with the ongoing stuff uh, between Russia and Ukraine, obviously. It's important for people to recognize that fuel production and fuel enrichment doesn't isn't necessarily linked to proliferation mm -hmm. and that there are technologies that allow us to keep track of the material in such a way that uh, we're pretty safe even if somebody's enriching material and it's also important to recognize that enrichment is really the old is, is an old word it really means purification it's 
you were able to produce much smaller machines if we're able to use a pure fuel rather than one that is uh, impure by having lots of uh, non-fissile material in the fuel. Uh, you know, the, the highly enriched uranium experiments that we did, there was the EBR-1, I think, was about as tall as an American football and not much bigger around was able to produce, you know, quite a bit of, I can't remember, it was like four or five kilowatts on that little bit. Anyway, it's high, enrichment is, is not necessarily a bad thing. And plutonium is certainly a good fuel source uh, and often is not particularly usable as a weapons material if it's been produced in a commercial reactor. Yeah, that's part of the... Um some of like the safeguards, um, I guess, perspective on it, right? Um, I think there's a really easily relatable idea um, about, I forgot what the phrase for it is, um, but I think something that's like really, really easy for anyone who might be listening to this to understand um, is, let's say, there's like constantly scenarios about like, oh, does a high level waste sitting at like an ISFACI spent fuel pad uh, or an independent spent fuel storage installation, um, ISFACI, does that pose a proliferation risk? What if somebody wanted to like steal one of those casts? Um, And the answer is that they can't because it is so freaking difficult to move them because they weigh so much. Um, So like it would either take a lot of time or a lot of effort or a lot of people, a lot of equipment, something that would be really obvious and easy for uh, security to catch before you were able to get uh, even one of those casts moved like a very small distance, even like close to off the pad. Like someone would notice, you would get caught, you would not succeed. Um, And so that same idea... um, in terms of safeguards can be applied um, to a lot of our uh, advanced reactor fuels because like the amount of effort um, or the types of technology that would be needed to uh, divert that material or those technologies to something that was uh, specific to nuclear weapons um, is something that would basically be very easily caught right, by the IEA or by a neighboring country um, or by, like, satellite surveillance, right? Like, that's one of the primary ways that we keep tabs on Russia's nuclear arsenal is um, there's there's all these different um, levels of intelligence that would allow us to catch those things. And so in that way, a lot of our advanced reactor uh, equipment, materials, facilities um, are safeguarded from diversion. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that there are other ways to ensure uh, or safeguard material other than just the idea that the casks are huge and hard to move because many of us are very interested in much smaller uh, nuclear power systems and different fuel forms that may not need those kinds of enormous uh, concrete and steel casks that weigh 100 tons and have to be moved by a slow crawler. So, you know, we need to have other means of ensuring the safeguarding and protection of material that don't necessarily require those kinds of high, high density 
high mass, uh, you can't move it kind of arguments because we do want to proliferate very small reactors in many places around the world because people need them, need what they yeah. can produce. Well, the nice thing about those casts is that we do have the technology to move them. It's just that illegally obtaining said technology is very difficult. <laughs> <laughs> well, the technology that's being used to move them to where they are today is a slow crawler. It's this enormous crane yeah. that lifts up the material and and moves around at the pace of a of a maybe a tortoise or or slower. It's really slow, <laughs> but because they're they're they weigh a hundred tons, one hundred and fifty tons. They're they're huge and massive. Um, so let's move on to a, another topic. Uh, you have been a nuclear advocate since 2016. And I think your initial entry into this field was saving a couple of nuclear reactors by yourself. Is that kind of what happened? <laughs> um, by myself is the last way that I would describe it. <laughs> um, it really took a village. Um, so in, in 2016, the Clinton and Quad Cities nuclear power plants, there's one reactor at Clinton and two reactors at Quad Cities. Um, these are the two that are the furthest away from Chicago. They were at risk, both in Illinois. So this is Illinois specific because that's where I was at the time. Um, we're at risk of uh, decommissioning due to economic reasons. So in being very far away from Chicago, um, they were like, well, we could just like easily replace this generation with natural gas, right? Like Invenergy um, was the up and coming natural gas company in the area who wanted to slap some more plants down in that area uh, to replace these nuclear power plants. Um, and they were luckily saved by the Future Energy Jobs Act, um, which was passed due to the efforts of uh, a lot of folks um, including um, people from at the time were uh, members of uh, what would become environmental progress and what would become Generation Atomic and uh, Stand Up for Nuclear. A lot of those folks were um, present on the ground doing like protests, um, like trying to do uh, or I guess communicate with local uh, like state and house representatives. I was not as heavily involved in like as much of the grass tops. I was more focused on the grassroots and trying to get my fellow students um, at the University of Illinois to be supportive of this issue in the first place and then care enough to then call their representatives and say, this is an issue that I care about. Please pass the Future Energy Jobs Act in order to save these nuclear power plants. Um, I actually partnered, a lot of people are really surprised by this, uh, with the student section of Beyond Coal, which was a sub-campaign by the Sierra Club. So this, these were like Sierra Club student leadership on campus working with us because we all had the same goal of preventing these new natural gas builds by Invenergy. Um, and so that was super cool. Like I still have like my Sierra club t-shirt from, um, like our quad days and trying to like pass pamphlets out and like, 
do fun little gimmicks like spin the wheel and see if you can answer a question about nuclear just to get people to come over so we could talk to them about Fiji. Um, so that, yeah, that's kind of where, where my grassroots advocacy started. There was also a march. I know there's like a bunch of pictures of this on the internet. Um, there was a march through Chicago one day. This is where I met a lot of current advocates like Michael and Eric and Mark. Um, and uh, at one point, uh, like we ended at the ground level of the skyscraper that Invenergy is, or at least wasn't at the time. I don't know where they are now. Um, and like Eric needed to stall to deal with some AV stuff. So he gave me the mic. And that was like the first time I ever went on any mic about nuclear advocacy. Um, and it was at that point for, they were like, we, we need to keep giving her the mic. You speak very well. I can see why they would say that. I wonder if you're, 2016 experience with the Beyond Coal folks to fight a natural gas facility. I wonder if that caused Aubrey McClendon, the primary funder of the Beyond Coal, Coal program at the Sierra Club, to roll over in his grave. <laughs> Maybe. Um, Do you know who Aubrey McClendon was? I don't actually. He was the founder and CEO of a company called Chesapeake Energy, which was the largest uh, natural gas fracking company in the U.S. at the time. But he gave the Sierra Club about $25 million to fund the Beyond Coal campaign. I, I guess it checks out, you know, <laughs> um, especially because uh, I so one of the other things I was doing at the University of Illinois was that I was the head teaching assistant for like basically energy systems 101, um, which was like a gen ed class that taught about fossil fuels, nuclear renewables throughout like a semester for mostly non-engineering students just trying to get their science gen ed. So it was like a very 101 type of class. Um, and because of that class, I was like the main person updating the slides year after year. And, uh, that meant that I had to like track what the percentages, um, of our energy generation in the United States from all of our energy sources was. And like over just those four years, um, coal and natural gas basically just like flipped numbers um, from being like slightly plurality coal to slightly plurality natural gas uh, going from like uh, like 35% or whatever down to like 29% or something over like four to six years. Yep. Natural gas was uh, taking markets away from coal mm -hmm. with, of course, a little help with a push behind to push coal down. That that happens in the energy world. I think sometimes people forget that the energy industry has cared as much about demand and markets as it has about supply. Uh, you don't necessarily make your money if you're an oil company by finding a lot more supply if there's not yet a demand for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Happens with, with gas as well. Here in Tennessee. Which, of course... <laughs> oh, go ahead. No, it leads me to, I mean, one of my, the things I beat the drum on is how many uh, times that the uh, competitive uh, energy sources uh, have been found to be doing things to push the buttons, put their thumbs on the scale against nuclear, because nuclear is a pretty darn uh, competitive power source that 
captures a market and hangs onto it for 93% of the time. Yeah. Um, that's actually something that we're kind of struggling with a little bit here in Tennessee, not necessarily the nuclear part, but the, uh, coal versus natural gas versus increase in demand. Um, and so there are propositions out to build new natural gas plants here in Tennessee. Um, and they're primarily to replace uh, the aging coal plants here. Um, but at the same time, they're also projecting significant increase in energy demand over the next few years. And so uh, it's like a combination of um, hotter summers, um, but also more people just moving to the state. There's more people moving into Tennessee than moving out of Tennessee. Um, and so they also need to create more um, generation to meet that demand. And there is uh, no nuclear projects um, anytime soon. There's just demonstration projects, but they're not going to be connected to the grid. Um, and so we're most likely going to see more natural gas here, but there is also a massive, massive push um, to see more solar than what TVA has already promised. Um, and then uh, there's I've also been working with some environmental groups here uh, in Tennessee as well. So this is like a, it's mostly all the same people, but um, Sunrise Knoxville, I would say is like the closest to home group that I talk to regularly, um, as well as like, uh, I don't remember the full acronym for it. I think it's like Southern Appalachians for Clean Energy um, or some something along those not lines acronym wise. Um, but yeah, I, I have definitely been engaging um, with uh, folks that are kind of akin to the Beyond Coal group from the Sierra Club at U of I as well um, in helping them fight for um, increased uh, clean energy replacements for coal um, because there's very, very little renewable uh, energy going on here in Tennessee. So to me, variability is not as much of an issue here just because there's so little renewable to begin with. Yeah, when there's not very much renewable, there's room for it on the grid. Mm -hmm. and, and it certainly does serve as a fuel-saving technology. Uh, it's that when people start trying to make renewable do something that it really can't do, which is supply 100% of the grid or even 90% yeah. or probably even 50%. Yeah. Uh, you know, once you get to, to penetration levels approximately equal to the capacity factor of the generation source, you're getting close to the limit uh, of what you can do without massive changes to the grid. People that claim that wind and solar are cheap don't like to talk about the impacts they have on other parts of the grid because the their calculations don't include those. Yeah, I don't have the pie chart in front of me. I could probably pull it up in about 30 seconds, but um, I think I'm, I'm going to try to find okay. my own pie chart, actually. And while you're doing that, I'm just going to throw out a question that maybe we can talk about later. Uh, mm -hmm. One challenge that places where there's been a high penetration of coal in the past have in terms of shifting to natural gas is that logically enough, no one ever built a lot of natural gas pipelines into areas that have a lot of coal. So it's not necessarily as easy as some people might think to switch from coal to natural gas because the plants might be cheap, but the pipelines aren't that easy to construct. 
Yeah. Um, because if you're looking to replace directly on site, use the same switch yard, um, then either you have to build new pipelines, which um, is slated currently to happen um, here in Tennessee. Obviously, there's protests against that because people don't want um, the all that land to be disturbed. Also, because um, the fossil fuel industries tend to be significantly poorly regulated, especially in comparison to nuclear. Um, and so there is there's more reports about um, spills, leaks, etc. Um, so it's either you build more pipelines uh, through those areas or you transport the fuel there some other way. Um, and some other way is typically more dangerous um, and even more prone um, to issues. Um, I There's no safer way to transport natural gas uh, other than by pipeline um, unless you don't transport it at all. Um, so, but I did pull up my pie chart. Um, as of 2021 EIA numbers, um, so this is one year out of date because um, 2022 numbers are probably out or close to being out. Um, but the variable renewables uh, made up only 0.6% of all Tennessee electricity generation. So that is very small and we can definitely stand to increase that percentage um, and eat into our coal and natural gas percentage. Absolutely. Of course, I, I, I think, as I recall the maps, Tennessee's not a particularly good wind state. No. So solar is no. probably going to be yep. the, the major portion of that. Yep. By comparison, um, the United States overall is, so this is also 2021, 9.5% wind, uh, 3% solar. Um, so that's 12.5%. Uh, variable renewables and then Illinois um, wind plus other put us at like 10% and this was in 2020. Your former, your undergraduate university, so I should say, has got a very interesting uh, research reactor project going. Have you been keeping mm -hmm. up with the UIUC USNC collaboration? A little bit. So um, I do know um, like a, a bit about the micro reactor project there. Um, I know that it was going to be built regardless of like the passage of CJA because uh, like it's not going to be selling significant amounts of power. I don't, I'm not sure if it's going to be selling any amount of power to the grid. And if it is, it's like half or less because I think that was part of the requirements um, to be considered like a research versus commercial reactor. Um, actually, I don't think they're selling any power. I could be wrong. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> but I also know that it is a major uh, area for uh, research on um, thermal hydraulics. Um, so there's a great uh, nuclear thermo professor there, Dr. Caleb Brooks. Um, and I know that his research group is going to be benefiting significantly from this uh, project and that he and his students plan to publish a lot of material about um, coolant loops for uh, small reactor projects. So I know that that's a major part of it. Um, but other than that, I haven't been keeping up as much with the project. Yeah, I think it's also going to be an important uh, example of how universities can help train not only operators, but maintainers and and management and all kinds of stuff for the, for the upcoming commercial nuclear industry. 
having a a a, a reactor that's is a version of a commercial plant is going to be huge, I think. And I think it's hopefully going to be the first of several, maybe yeah. even the first of many. <laughs> yeah. Especially because um, while we're still in the stage of R&D or hopefully nearing the end of the R&D stage, um, and we're seeing more companies submit their designs to the NRC for review, um, it's a great time to build demonstration projects. So that way, when it's time to debut debut the real thing um, or the commercial version of your technology, um, then you can use the successes and the testing from your demo uh, to back you up when it comes time to apply for the license for your commercial facility. Um, so that's one thing that Kairos is doing here as well in Tennessee with their Hermes project. Um, they're on their way through um, the NRC. Actually, I think I saw something in like the ANS smart briefs recently about how the NRC recommended that they get their license. Um to build the Hermes demo here. And the whole point of the Hermes demonstration project is for them to do all of the like heat load testing, um, et cetera, on the demo version of what will hopefully become their commercial technology um, to sell worldwide. So that's a very exciting project and I'm excited to see them break ground like 30 minutes away from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm excited about that. I think that what you read was that the Advisory Committee on Reactor Safety, the ACRS, recommended to the NRC that they approve the design. The NRC doesn't necessarily need to make a recommendation to anybody. They, yeah, they're the approval authority. Weird. So, no, it's, it's, it, it, it is. Yeah, the ACRS uh, review is a very important step. The Hermes is proving that you can get through an NRC process fairly promptly if you're well prepared. They did a lot of homework and did a lot of, of ground laying, but it's only been 20 months since they submitted their construction permit application. Uh, so wow. I, I hope that they're breaking ground and building soon. Uh, and as you noted, you noted that's going to be a non-power reactor, although it will produce up to 35 megawatts of thermal energy um, as part of their testing programs. Yeah, you're right. My bad. It was the NRC Advisory Committee on Reactor Safeguards recommended approval of a construction permit uh, for the Hermes demo. Yeah, they're, they're going through the Part 50 two-step process, which is, in my view, the, the right way to go for a first-of-a-kind system of any kind. I, the this, The one-step process, as far as I can tell, just ties your hands too much once you get the design certification or you, once you get the uh, the combined operating lines, the COL, you can't make any changes to your design as you're building it. And mm -hmm. if you've never built it before, the chances of needing to make changes is pretty high. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's about 100% is a probability you're going to need to make changes. Well, flexibility so, is a good thing in a regulatory framework. <laughs> yeah, it is. Now, in terms of policy, how involved were you in helping get the uh, Inflation Reduction Act across the finish line and getting the right kinds of nuclear incentives included there? Effectively, not at all, um, because 
there there were other nuclear advocates involved in that passage um but the pretty much the only thing that i did at that time was sign the generation atomic um petition that basically went out to every single person that they could possibly get it to um to send like a okay uh, if you do this action, then it automatically sends uh, like an email to your uh, representatives and tells them that you, a constituent, want them to support the passage of the IRA um, for these pro-nuclear reasons. Um, that was uh, a major thing that Jenna did and was responsible for um, helping with like that push at the grassroots level. Um, and so I did my part as normal Gen A member and like American citizen. But other than that, I don't, uh, recall doing anything, um, like beyond that personally. Hmm, you probably were busy as a PhD candidate doing something like studying or writing or researching. <laughs> yeah, probably, uh, researching. I think this happened after I defended my, uh, thesis or, uh, or like doing my prelims. So, um, so it's probably doing research. How long do you have before you become Dr. Hayes? Hopefully a year and a half. Um, the thing that I was working on before this was actually like a summary of my research plan to send to D3D uh, for my the rest of my PhD. So um, it, it feels like it's a lot of work. Um, I definitely have a lot to do. Um, that does mean that I will have to scale back a little bit on my advocacy work for the next year and a half. But uh, if it means that I can then focus the rest of my career on energy policy, then it will be worth it. You're going to be a more effective policy person, I think, with the ability to use the honorific. I think so, too. I think so, too. Um, I definitely do deal a little bit with, um, I guess, like perception of me as a person. Um, not just as a nuclear engineer. Um, I've definitely experienced a lot of scenarios where like I would be at some outreach like event for kids or high school students and their parents um, and had a parent, um, typically like a father, come up to me um, and ask me like a question or just ask like a general question about like a plasma demo that we had brought or whatever and how it works. And I would explain it to him. And he would just simply like not believe me. Um, and then I'd have to like call over like a male student and then have him say pretty much the exact same thing for the guy to be like, oh, OK, which is very annoying. <laughs> um, and so and I look super young for my age. Um, I'm just kind of starting to get my laugh lines um, at like almost 26 years old. So um, I think that having that honorific is going to make a significant difference, unfortunately, in how I'm perceived um, further along in my career. I know that there's going to be a time when you're going to be very happy to look young for your age. <laughs> so so don't don't give that up. Just uh, it, it is it is tragic. And, and it's been a concern of mine for a long time. I am obviously not a female. Um, but I do have an awful lot of very respected females in my life. I am proud of the fact that before I went there, the Naval Academy added uh, women to, to the brigade of midshipmen. I was proud to be able to say I was 
in the first class that call call other midshipmen ma'am uh, because we had a, a class above us that was women. And then I'm the father of two daughters and the grandfather of four granddaughters. So, you know, it's a, it's an important thing for me to, to think that people can be respected and recognized for their knowledge and their skills, no matter what they look like or sound like. Yeah. As long as they and know what they're talking about. It's an easy thing to say, but it's not something that a lot of people really, um, like embody I guess or like that uh that like penetrates the way that they think um in the moment right I think um pretty much everybody would agree with everything that you just said um but there's a lot of times where people have unconscious biases and they don't even realize that their perception of me is influencing um how they perceive the things that I say or the things that I write um and so it's definitely a concern of mine when it comes to um, ensuring that like the content that I want to communicate about um, energy policy, about nuclear power um, gets across and is received um, in such a way that they people will just like hopefully um, believe that a nuclear engineer knows what she's talking about. <laughs> Now, I guess we're on this on a topic of another interest area for you. You've been serving in the DEI, is that correct? The diversity, equity, inclusion, is that the right yeah. um, acronym it, within the ANS, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so I I serve as like a DEI advocate in um, a few different places. So there's the Diversity, Equity, uh, and Inclusion Action Committee, or DAAC, at um, my university uh, in the nuclear engineering department. Um, so that group has been uh, responsible for um, making fee waivers more accessible to low-income um, potential graduate students. Um, uh, they've also, um, they're currently working on, or I guess we're currently working on, um, recruitment um, of uh, black high school students in actually the neighborhood that I live in, um, because I happen to live in the neighborhood that is next door to one of the largest black high schools, um, in the city. Um, then there's also, as you mentioned, um, DIA, which is diversity inclusion in ANS, the A stands for ANS, I guess, um, which is one of the, I think they're technically a committee, um, within, no, they're a division Think they're a division. I always forget which one's a committee and which one's a division. I think they're a division within ANS. Um, the like where they put like the student sections committee and like the diversity inclusion within ANS. Um, it's just kind of like they're like things that have to be in ANS, but they're like their own separate thing. That's not just one of the committees or like one of the technical divisions. So that's why I always forget. Um, but Anyway, yeah, that's where I uh, promote things that like I think ANS could be doing um, to improve like recruitment, retention, um, and like a just like a generally more inclusive and welcoming culture within the nuclear society. Um, so then the the to me like the most impactful thing that I'm doing is as uh, an organizer of this group called the Computational Research Access Network or CRANE for short, they all have their own acronyms. Um, I think CRANE is the coolest one because it does the most direct work. Um, and like, it's, they're like the most proactive, like as soon as like 
someone came up with an idea instead of like creating a bunch of red tape and having discussions about how like the best way to do it we just did it um and that thing that we're doing is teaching uh computational physics methods to uh primarily undergraduate but also graduate uh students from underrepresented backgrounds in um computational physics uh and so this is everything from like intro to Python all the way through like Monte Carlo algorithms or particle and cell algorithms. Um, it's a very, very fast paced course, but it also teaches like the, like how do you, how do you learn or how do you think um, in computer algorithms um, to these, like the exact demographic of students that all of these different groups and a lot of like diversity groups try to target and just gives them those skills directly, as well as networking with them and then helping them feel more connected to the physics community. Um, so those are kind of, that's like the summary of all of the DE&I stuff that I do. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like a terrific uh, endeavor. One of the things that does come as a challenge to some of us is we really want to include more people, a larger, uh, diverse body of, of recruiter recruitment. But some some will say, well, you can't you can't hire somebody that never applies. Mm -hmm. You can't you know hire somebody who has never even started to think about going to school. And of course, that that's part of the challenge. I mean, I I know that there are many people who don't aren't born with the advantage that I have of having two college graduates for parents and knowing how to apply and knowing what to do and knowing how to choose a major, all that stuff. I think that you're one of, you're the first in your family, right? To, went yeah. to college. That's a hard thing to do when, who, who are you going to look to? Who are your examples? Yeah. Um, I am blessed in that I had examples in my friends um, and in the faculty at the University of Illinois, um, the culture in the nuclear department at U of I is really like a family. I know that like pretty much every department wants to say that about themselves, but in that department, it's real. Um, like there's no such thing as like an age gap really in, in friendships between like freshmen and seniors and undergrad. Um, that's, that's the department where I met um, the likes of Katie Muma, um, who I credit as being uh, like my first mentor. Um, and so having been surrounded by people who like taught me like how to write a resume, right? Um, or like how to request letters of recommendation or just being close to faculty who were willing to write letters of recommendation for their freshman undergraduate researchers to like help me um, get positions um, or help me get into grad school and stuff like that. So also just encouraging me um, to pursue pretty much whatever I wanted, um, I guess, made up for the fact that I didn't have, like I couldn't ask um, my parents for those kinds of things, right? Like my, my dad was super supportive of me, but he couldn't offer me like the information about like how to, I don't know, um, do it in an interview for like an internship at Exelon or whatever. Um, it just wasn't something that like he was prepared to like advise me on. Um, and a lot of people are in that boat. Um, but I sometimes feel like I was lucky 
to have made some of the connections that I did at U of I and not every department at every institution offers that type of culture. And so that's one of the things that we wanted to promote in Crane um, and hopefully something that we see in other organizations and other societies as well moving forward. That was uh, a lot of talk, a lot, a lot of important stuff about what happened while you were at the University of Illinois. But you also had to get to the University of Illinois. Yeah. Hopefully, I mean, from a from growing up with without necessarily having college graduates or people who could help you find a university. Is that am I interpreting it correctly? I must. So one thing that we found um, at Austin East, which is the high school that is like walking distance from where I live, um, is that their students they know about the programs that basically fund for like your college. Like I don't have any student debt because I came from like a lower income household and like the government funded my way through going and getting my bachelor's degree. And they'll do that here in Tennessee too. Um, that wasn't just like a woke Illinois thing. That's like a prevalent program at a lot of public universities. Um, and they know like that the University of Tennessee exists, that there's these great engineering programs um, there's two problems though. Um, and this is, this is what we found through like a lot of like discussion and like monitoring of like the situation with the students who want to be engineers and the students who don't want to be engineers, um, at that high school specifically, because their high school is in a different situation than my, than my, than my high school was in. The two problems are the testing scores. So their high school doesn't have uh, significant access, um, to, like ACT prep um, that my high school did. And the other issue is that a lot of those students don't see themselves as being able to be engineers. And that's something that I can relate to, especially as a woman of color. When I was in high school, I had to, like my AP physics teachers, like really had to like really push me and like get on my butt about becoming an engineer because I could not see myself as an engineer at all when I was like in their class. I was performing very well, but I wasn't doing like first robotics. I wasn't taking like the um, coding class that my high school offered. Um, I was like a band kid and like that was more my thing. Um, and so I didn't really see myself as like someone going into engineering until somebody explicitly told me that they saw it for me and then I believed them. Um, and so there's not a whole lot of that attitude um, like prevalent through that high school. I'm sure that their science teachers and their robotics teachers tell them the same thing. Um, but there's like, they have this sense of my school isn't very high performing and I go to this school, so I must not be very high performing. Or while well, a bunch of other kids around me um, are planning to just like um, graduate from high school and then just like get a job wherever. And so it's fine if I do that too, which that is a fine thing um, to think. But I do think that there are potentially students there that could um, be engineers, but maybe don't believe in themselves enough to see it. Um, I once spoke at a middle school, um, a few years ago and a seventh grade teacher came up to me at the end of the day. And she told me that one of the kids that saw me 
like speak, um, went up to her and was like, I never thought that like a girl who looks like that could be an engineer. Um, and so there's definitely kids in those circumstances too. Um, and I think it's, they're more likely to be in that mindset if, if they're a girl, um, or if they're going to a school that's like low performing and then that kind of, you know, that's how they think about themselves. Um, I interviewed a student a few weeks ago who super high performing. He's like the, the main communicator for their engineering pathway at Austin East. And he was like, um, when I'm taking the ACT, I just get really, really anxious because like something is like telling him that he's not supposed to perform well or that like there's so much riding on this test and like he can't he can't um, like risk failing or like doing poorly because there's there's all this opportunity that he could lose if he doesn't perform well on this one exam. And so there's a lot of anxiety, I think, plaguing the students. Um, and so that that mentality is one thing that has to be overcome. But another, again, is the funding and the test prep. Um, I happened to go to a high school in a blended, financially blended um, part of Illinois, where I was coming from um, like lower income housing slash like just like homes that didn't cost as much to buy. Um, but the high school itself also overlapped with like some very large houses in like a very wealthy <laughs> part of town. And so those people funded the school. Um, and I just got to benefit from all that cool funding. And I got a lot of test prep just every single week from all my classes and performed well on my ACT. Who would have thought? So there's definitely some yeah. systemic things and some cultural things at play. Absolutely. And one of the other things that, that we in the in the nuclear world who are trying to build a workforce for our advanced nuclear economy, we have to also remember that, unfortunately, they, they don't do it very much these days, but vocational type technical training is just as valuable as being an engineer. Uh, you know, we need to get people to get interested in in mechanics and welding and electric electric elect, electricians. Yes. Pipe fitters and all, yes. all these kinds of, of jobs that, you know, I'm not trying to, to shoehorn anybody in them, but there are people out there who are terrific, smart people that just don't like sitting in classrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're absolutely right. We like need to like get more people into those trade programs and then from those trade programs into our power plants. Later on in life, they, they can decide if they want to, you know, go take, you know, more school and, and become, you know, something else. But actually doing things with your hands is such a valuable thing. Hey, Alyssa, it, it's uh, getting almost to the hour point, And I mm -hmm. like to try to not go too much past that. I want to give you an opportunity though. uh, have, is there something you want to say or some topic you want to cover that we haven't touched on yet? Well, we talked about um, enrichment and reprocessing in non-nuclear weapons and non-first world countries in the very, very beginning of this. Um, and when you mentioned that before the interview that like, oh, I could just bring up whatever, um, that was kind of like the main thing that I was thinking about because I've been thinking a lot about non-proliferation recently. Um, I'm also on the public policy committee in the American Nuclear Society. Um, and so one of the things that we're currently working on is there's going to be a new po position statement 
on nonproliferation. And uh, nothing that I have said in this interview uh, necessarily reflects on the beliefs of the American Nuclear Society. Just going to put that out there. Um, so, uh, but I am excited uh, for the new nonproliferation position statement to make its way through the rounds. But um, so, yeah, we've already touched on the thing that I've been recently working on. We've talked a lot about DE and I. That like those that's it. Those are my two passions: like pro nuclear advocacy and diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah, and included in your non proliferation, I think very specifically, you support the idea that South Korea should be able to do pyro processing if it feels. Oh, absolutely. Oh, in yeah. It's, it's best interest to do that. Yeah, I, I agree. Particularly, I mean, it's got. There are people that say well, we don't need to to reprocess. We've got all this uranium available, but we just need to do some stuff with the leftovers. And if you're a small country that didn't have a whole lot of space, you know, recycling the material is one way to reduce the amount of space it takes. So, plus the fact it gets people away from asserting that it's just waste. It's not waste. It's future fuel. It's it's good stuff. But I so do have uh, one more. Go ahead. Um, which is that I actually just got back from Germany um, about a week and a half ago. And while I was there, I haven't released a ton of media about this yet, um, but I got to tour um, Brockdorf nuclear power plant with uh, Mark Nelson um, and a professor, uh, a design professor from a local university as well. Um, and while I was there, I learned that um, at least that nuclear power plant in Germany, if not all six of them, um, have not yet had the order to start doing permanent decommissioning work. And so therefore, the closures are still in a stage where it's reversible. And when you say all six of them, you mean the six that were closed in 2021 and then this, I mean, the three that were closed in 2021 mm -hmm. and the three that were closed April 15th of this year. Yes, exactly. Those six. Okay. Yeah. And those are, those are the biggest and, and best of the 17 that they had when they started closing them in 2011. Yeah. Producing what a quarter of all of their electricity. Yes. Although they peaked at over 30%. At one point Oof. they had 21 plants operating. I think that was 1997 was the peak. I did or, not know that. Yeah. To be at over a yeah. third. Yeah. The uh, interesting part about Germany's closure was it was actually implemented in the law in 2001, not 2011. Hmm. But, like, I do think that it, obviously, I think all pro-nuclear people can agree that it would be great if they could just be like, yeah, so these six reactors reopen them. Just a thought. Yep. Yep. It'd be great for the, for the world, for the uh, atmosphere, for the economy of Germany. And believe it or not, it would also have a major positive impact on Japan and South Korea. Hmm. You want to elaborate because a little Germany bit on that? Would be, yeah. Germany would be buying less liquefied natural gas which would, mm -hmm. in the way that the bathtub works, 
If they buy less, that means there's more available to other people to buy at a lower price. True. So Germany's ability to go through the winter this winter by buying up all the gas it could find put a hurt on other people that wanted to buy that gas and, and mm. use it. So it's it, the, the world LNG market is almost now as connected as a world oil market. So it, it's not mm. just isolated anymore, but yeah. Hey, I, I've enjoyed our conversation. I'm glad that we covered the areas that you want to talk about. Uh, I congratulate you on your, your award as the, volunteer of the month i congratulate you on the successes you've contributed to in saving nuclear plants in illinois and hope that uh your continued studies go very well and we can soon look up to dr Alyssa hayes uh in the nuclear advocacy world and finding good positions on capitol hill to influence i look forward to that that day as well um, uh, it'll be a tough road to get there, but it'll be a rewarding one. Yeah. Thank you very much, Alyssa. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me. There's a way, a way, such a better way today, today. Raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way today. There's a better way. Ooh, there's a way, such a better way. Today, now raise your voice, tell the world there's a better way. Today, there's a better.